this summer, Sam preached on the prophet Obadiah, but I cannot see it without going, Obadiah, every time I see it, because she made that joke, and whenever I heard she was reading, I wanted to just say yeehaw, because Sam, you know, that's what you do. Uh, thanks for everyone who served yesterday. Uh, beautiful expression of our community that we get to give of ourselves to this city. And so if you served at Agape or you joined the Walk for Freedom, um, to however you put your hand to what God is doing in the city, we say um, thank you. Um, if this is your first time joining us, we have been journeying through this series called Come Holy Spirit, which is both a title and a prayer. And so as we've been journeying through this series, we've articulated this a few times, but I, I just want to remind you, we have four outcomes we would like to see come about in this community. First, that our community acquires a knowledge of God that moves beyond information. We want to acquire a knowledge of God that lives in our gut and strengthens our faith. We want to move beyond just Christian data. We want to foster ordinary encounters with the Spirit of God. I'm just foolish enough to believe that holy ground is all around us. That a moment at the sink or the moment with a coworker can be sacred. We want to become radically open to God. Imagine a whole community that lived with one ear tuned to heaven and willing to be surprised by what our God might do. And then we want to do the Jesus stuff. Our community has heard the announcement of Jesus and has been called from our previous way of life into discipleship to Jesus. And so it is time for us to continue and to begin doing the things that Jesus did. And so part of doing the stuff that Jesus does is reflecting on his relationship with the Spirit. So we are working our way through the Gospels, focusing on the role of the Spirit, and today comes the Gospel of Mark. Now, way back in May, long before we started this series, Cassie and I bought a house. Uh, you, if you've had a personal conversation with us, you know this because it's all we talked about all summer long. Uh, because it was pretty cool. It was, it was a goal that we had set for ourselves, and it was... Uh, I mean, in this economy, like, it was a big deal. Like, we, we worked really hard for this. There were a lot of God moments along the way, but I specifically remember the day we went in to sign our mortgage and to get the keys, the day the house would be officially ours. And so we walked in, we signed an ungodly amount of papers, we got the keys, we took a photo, and then we just left. I've heard young parents say something like this, too, that the hospital just hands you a baby and they're like, here's a human, good luck. As a kid, I, I always imagined that a day would come in which an elder would put a hand on my shoulder, look me in the eye and say, let me tell you the secret. This is how to live with courage. This is how to live with confidence. This is how to live with character. I always imagined that there would be a moment in which the secrets of human life would be shared with me. Or at least I would feel a little bit less like an imposter. John Tyson writes this. To my surprise, the older I got, the more I realized the big people were still small people. 
hiding behind their roles, responsibilities, and accomplishments. Turns out they never got the talk either. They just got older. There is a name for this sense of lack as you try to navigate life without the tools you think you need. Imposter syndrome. On this imposter syndrome, psychology today notes people who struggle with imposter syndrome believe that they are undeserving of their achievements and their high esteem in which they are in fact generally held. They feel like they are not complete or as intelligent as others might think. And that soon enough, people will discover the truth about them. Instead of a courageous life, we can often live in a straight jacket of doubt. Doubting our position, doubting our abilities, doubting our relationships, and most painfully, doubting who we are. There can be this crushing pressure to make your resume and your story more like someone else's instead of who you really are. And so we do all kinds of things to maintain the illusion that we are the people that we think we are. We pursue money, influence, sexual prowess, recognition, career achievement, and status to keep the illusion alive that we deserve to be where we found ourselves. To, to finally convince ourselves of who we are. And I think one of the most striking things about the character of Jesus is his detachment from this imposter syndrome. His detachment from the need for external validation. He is the most secure person you can possibly imagine. He lives with confidence, character, and courage against all odds. The Roman politics and power structures, the social norms and procedures, the crowds and the religious critics, none of those external voices ever seem to shake Jesus' view of himself or his mission. And I think it's because he got the talk. I think Jesus got the talk that I so desperately wanted as a kid. Because he learned the secret of being fully alive. So on the docket for the few moments we have together today is the gospel of Mark. Jesus' talk and the Spirit's role in communicating our identity. So if you would, turn with me to Mark 1. And while you do, I want to give a little background. Of all the biographies of Jesus, Mark's gospel is the shortest. Scholars believe that Mark is writing from the perspective of the disciple Peter who tells of his time with Jesus. And so Mark skips the virgin pregnancy, the angelic messengers, and the Messiah's childhood, altogether skipping Christmas and jumping right into the action of Jesus' life. And at this point in our story, Mark picks up with Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, who is leading this small renewal movement on the banks of the Jordan River, calling the Israelite people back to God. And out of a rural village called Nazareth comes Jesus, who shows up on the banks of the Jordan and participates in the ministry of John. Mark writes this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, 
and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Mark records that as Jesus came up from the water, the heavens were peeled back, ripped open and rent in two. The only other time Mark uses this wording is when the curtain of the temple is torn in two at Jesus' death, implying that this moment is significant, consequential, history-altering. The language of this passage is evocative. In four short verses that we will cover today, there are at least six, if not more, references or hyperlinks, if you will, to passages in the Hebrew Scripture. And the first is from the prophet Isaiah, who declares, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah 64. This is the beginning of a desperate prayer that Isaiah offers, asking God to set his world right, to end the violence and remember his people. And Mark's subtle hint is that Isaiah's prayer is about to be answered. The heavens were torn open and the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. The Spirit resting on individuals is a significant event that only a few had experienced prior to this moment. In creation, the Spirit is the active agent shaping reality as we know it and filling the breath of the first humans. In the Exodus, craftsmen are empowered by the Spirit to work for God's glory and to make a dwelling place for God amongst the people of Israel. And throughout the history of Israel, leaders are filled with the Spirit, becoming the anointed ones, bridging heaven and earth. And in the prophets, the Spirit is inspiring their communication, calling them to confront the inequities and injustice of the ancient world. So when we read of the Spirit resting on this man from Nazareth, we can anticipate that he is in the lineage of those who are used by the Spirit of God. And so a simple but significant detail worth reflecting on is that Jesus' entire ministry is preceded by the Spirit resting upon him. What will follow in Jesus' ministry, his healings, his teaching, his miracle, is a profound collaboration with the Spirit. And so we read the heavens are peeled back, the spirit rests upon Jesus, and a voice from heaven declares, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Memorize that because you're going to hear it a lot. This is a short three-part affirmation hyperlinked to various points in the Old Testament. This is the talk. First, Jesus is told, you are my son. Word choice pulled directly from Psalm 2. An ancient hymn that would have been used in religious ceremonies as the king would ascend to his throne. Psalm 2, verse 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." Mark is letting his readers in on a secret. A new king has come. 
one through whom God's reign would be established. A new kingdom is dawning in this man. He is the son of God, a royal inheritor. Second, God's love is reinforced. You are my son whom I love. Jesus is the beloved son, a language that is reminiscent of Abraham and Isaac. Genesis 22. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. It's a call back to Genesis 22, which establishes the sacrifice Jesus will make later on, but also declares how loved he is. Jesus is loved in a way only a parent can know. It is a father reminding his son of his identity that precedes any other action on the part of the son. This moment tells us not what Jesus did, but who he is to God. And then third, this brings us to, with you, I am well pleased. A phrase that pulls again on the prophet Isaiah, where the prophet writes on, of the messianic servant. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is Isaiah writing of the Messiah, the hope of the Jewish people. The one who would put to right the wrongs of the world. And for a young man who grew up saturated in the Hebrew scriptures, anticipating, longing for this prophesied hero, the message was clear. You are him. This is a keystone moment in, the, in which the empowerment of the Spirit and the declaration, you are my beloved Son, enable Jesus to not only speak and act for God, but as God. For second century theologian origin, this is a profound moment in which we see the interaction of the Trinity, this divine community of love interacting with one another. He writes, the Father bore witness, the Son receives witness, and the Spirit gave confirmation. It is this powerful affirmation that seals Jesus' identity as the anointed one and propels him into his ministry. Now, prior to this moment that we're reading of, how much Jesus knows of his divine identity is up for debate. There are moments that suggest Jesus had some kind of idea, but if you didn't know, Jesus didn't write down his inner thoughts. We have yet to find his diary. And his disciples did not share what they knew. So regardless of how much Jesus knew, the gospel writers, Mark in particular, identifies this event, this moment, as the defining moment of Jesus' life, where the craftsman would become Messiah. And so in the waters of baptism, the Spirit rests upon Jesus, and his identity is communicated to him that he is the coming king, the beloved son, and the messianic servant. And it is with that knowledge of that identity that Jesus is propelled into the wilderness. Not necessarily the turn I would have taken, but that's what the text says. Verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days 
being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This text hinges on the Greek verb parazo, which is translated as tempted in the ESV, NIV, and NASB. But tempt really isn't quite the right word. It's too limiting for the idea this verb is trying to communicate. The problem here is not with the scriptures. The problem is with our English word tempt. When we talk about tempting, it is always to do evil. If you were attempting to encourage a coworker, you probably wouldn't say, I was tempted to say something nice. We use tempt almost exclusively in the negative to do evil. But this verb will be used three more times in Mark, and in each instance it will refer to the Pharisees asking Jesus questions about his interpretation of the Torah. And the Pharisees aren't necessarily, I know they get a bad rap, but they're not trying to get Jesus to do evil. Rather, they are doing something that is better articulated by our English verb, test. They're testing Jesus. They are attempting to reveal the truth about who he is. It's like a stress test, like an engineer who tests the structural integrity of a component to make sure it will hold up when the pressure gets too much. Or a carpenter who tests a beam to ensure it's been properly installed, or a cardiologist who puts a patient on a treadmill to reveal the truth about their body's systems. These tests put pressure, a stress on the subject in order to reveal the truth. Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit to undergo parazo so that the reality of his identity might be revealed. And so you have this catalytic moment where in the water, Jesus' identity is communicated to him through the power of the Spirit. And then that same Spirit leads him into an environment a wilderness for that identity to be revealed, tested, exposed. And like Jesus' baptism, the 40 days in the wilderness is written in such a way that it brings to mind the story of Israel. Let's look at Deuteronomy 8. The author writes, And you shall remember the whole way, that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Again, the language of testing. A moment in which God leads his people into an experience that will reveal the truth, the reality about who they are. And if you know the stories of Israel in the wilderness, you'll know what was revealed was not very good. Israel was called to be the family of God, a kingdom of priests, representatives of God's goodness, justice, and beauty to the nations of the world, but they consistently fail by choosing to do what is right in their own eyes, rather than accepting God's invitation to live in community with him. 
And so Mark, in referring to this language, is signaling that in Jesus, this story is starting all again. Jesus has come to be all that Israel cannot. Not as a replacement, but as their king. But the symbolism goes even deeper because we know that our God's intentions are not just to redeem Israel, but to redeem all humanity. So uh, is there a story in which one representative of humanity is given a vocation or a job from God and a tester appears calling into question the representative's identity? Yeah, like page three. There's an easy moment in which we look at Genesis and we say, there's something here. Jesus is not just the new representative of Israel, succeeding where Israel failed. He is the representative of all humanity. Succeeding in what it means to be made in the image of God. Jesus is not just showing us how to be a good Christian. He is demonstrating what it means to be fully human. The paradox at the center of our faith is that God became human so that he might show us what it means to be fully human. And so Jesus is right back in the garden confronting the powers of evil represented by one called Satan. Now we've spent some time on this figure before, but while we're here, some things bear repeating. Who this being is specifically, and where this being originated, the Bible is quiet on. Some have turned to passages in Ezekiel and Isaiah into origin stories for that being. I don't really think that that's what those stories are about. Um, but the Bible doesn't give us any answers to this, but we know that this evil figure is presented as a personified creature, a being lesser than God, who exists in rebellion to God, hell-bent on destroying those made in the image of God. And this creature's primary weapon is subtle distortion, lies that conceal the truth and lead to doubt, that what God intends for us is not our deepest good. And so if you find that perspective hard to believe, I get it. I regularly stand up here and confess to being a skeptic. I know it's a bizarre profession I find myself in as a skeptic, but here we are. Hear me out. As we approach Halloween and I confess of my skepticism, most of my skepticism is related to the red-horned and goofy figure Satan is depicted as. The Bible does not depict the accuser as this clownish character. Rather, the scripture depicts this figure as one directing and energizing tyrants, dictators, and bureaucrats. Think about what we've seen played out on the world stage just this week. We see lazy governments, callous policies, and deranged individuals. Peoples and system caught up with a utopian vision, willing to kill those made in the image of God just to achieve their vision of utopia. Just this week, entire families in Israel and Gaza killed by someone dropping a bomb from an office. Our world is ruled by laws like survival of the fittest, 
the strong conquering the weak, the well-off exploiting the hurting. And the machine must become more efficient and more effective regardless of who it has to be crushed in the process. We see evil played out in our world every single day. Is it really all that much of a stretch to think there might be an intelligence manipulating humanity into destroying itself? I'll be honest, I I don't think the Bible has all the answers to all the philosophical questions and intellectual questions that will be covered in the quarries. I don't think it has every answer we're looking for on evil, suffering, and death. But what the Bible does tell us is what God is doing about those things. And this is what's happening in Jesus' wilderness. Jesus is replaying humanity's failure to resist the evil one and turning it into a victory. In the water, the Holy Spirit affirms Jesus' identity and then leads him into the wilderness to be tested. And he does what Israel and Adam could not do. He is victorious because he remembers who he is. You are my son, whom I loved. With you, I am well pleased. Now, if you've read the Gospels through, you know that both Matthew and Luke both have an account of Jesus' baptism and his time in the wilderness. Both include the bestowal of an identity, the descent of the Spirit, and the testing in the wilderness. But both Luke and Matthew are are a little bit more long-winded. They include a lot more details than Mark's short anecdote, just four verses. But Mark, in his brevity, wants us to see that Jesus' identity bestowed in the water is now revealed in the wilderness. You have to imagine that 40 days of the hot Middle Eastern sun without food and combating the powers of evil that Jesus kept going back to what happened in the water day after day. I imagine he recalled the moment his head broke the surface of the Jordan when the Spirit of God descended upon him and filled him like it filled the lungs of the first humans. I have to imagine he repeated, recited, recalled those words spoken over him You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Jesus looks at the suffering he is experiencing, but determines there is something more true, more real and more powerful than what he is walking through. A truth more real than the suffering he is experiencing is the beloved identity given to him by God. For the words spoken in the water are true, even in the wilderness. Mark's purpose in this brief account is that we see ourselves in the life of Jesus. That being a disciple of Jesus, filled with the Spirit, is like going through a wilderness. And so we don't expect life to get any easier when we say yes to Jesus. Yeah, learning from Jesus to be fully human will solve a few of our problems, but it will also open us up to new conflict. Do you remember Jesus' least popular promise? In this world, you will have trouble. 
Or as Leonard Ravenhill once said, if you want to be like Jesus, remember this, he had a wilderness, a Gethsemane, and a Judas. To be called by the Spirit of Jesus is to enter into an ancient conflict and to become an active participant in the healing of our world. That is what it means to be a Christian. And the key to being faithful in the wildernesses we find ourselves is to remember what is spoken over us in the water. It is to draw our confidence, our character, and our courage from our beloved identity. You are a child of God, whom God loves. With you, he is well pleased. N.T. Wright observes that the whole Christian gospel could be summed up in this point. That when the living God looks at us, at every baptized and believing Christian, he says to us what he said to Jesus on that day. He sees us not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. When we come to Christ, we are invited into the household of God and bestowed an identity nothing can take away. Even as we walk through the test, through suffering and wilderness, we can draw strength from what is spoken over us in the waters of baptism. We are marked by the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are loved. Or as Henry Nouwen put it, being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. The hard part is believing that. Worship team, could you join me? Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. The challenge of your life and mine is actually believing what was spoken over us in the water. In this world, we are bombarded with voices that tell us we are unworthy or undeserving. When you walk through a wilderness, you will quickly discover what voices you have been listening to. Call these voices whatever you want, but I think you know the ones I'm talking about. They rattle around in our heads, energized by fear, playing to our deepest insecurities. They remind us of our shame and point us towards our past. They are voices that say you are an imposter. These are the voices that would dehumanize you. Voices that would degrade your value and make you question your dignity and your worth. They would have you question and doubt God's love for you. Set against these voices is another. A still, small voice offering a different story, a different reality, a different identity. It is a voice that will continue to speak over you what was spoken at Jesus' baptism. You are a child of God, whom I love with you, I am so proud. It's a voice that continues to say to us what was said to Jesus. And the Apostle Paul writes of this voice in Galatians 4. He writes to a community similar to ours, community of believers grappling with what it means to be Christian and what it means to be a human. And he writes this beautiful little 
God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. You are no longer condemned. You are loved. confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. God abides in him and he in God so that we have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. The invitation of the Spirit is to make your home in the love of God. things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to the Lord say, there is not a decision, there is not a place you can run in which the shadow of his love will not find you. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.